I'm Dick Moberg, and for more than 40 years, I've been developing technology to advance our understanding of the injured brain. I've had a chance to work with some of the leading minds in the field of neuromonitoring, including physicians, researchers, and entrepreneurs. I want to share their stories with you in the form of a weekly podcast so you can stay current on the latest developments in the field and the innovative people behind them. This is my neural network. I'm Dick Moberg, and today's guest is Dr. Tom Bleck, who is a professor of neurology at Northwestern Medical School. Dr. Bleck is also the founding president of the Neurocritical Care Society, and many people consider him to be the father of neurocritical care, or certainly one of the pioneers that formalized this discipline um, in medicine. Among his many awards and distinctions, he was voted among the best doctors in America continuously from 2006 to 2017, and one of the leading physicians in the world from 2011 to 2016. So welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Dick. Glad to be here. I wanted to start from uh, the beginning, at least the beginning of when I got to know you, and that was uh, in the mid-90s when uh, you were at UVA. And we had just developed this uh, continuous EEG monitor that also did um, quantitative EEG. I remember visiting you, and you showed me a trace of a spectral edge frequency that perfectly correlated with seizures in, uh, in an ICU patient. And it really opened my eyes to the, the value of quantitative EEG. We had used it prior to that uh, in anesthesia for like carotids and stuff, but I think this was the first time anyone had showed me the use in the ICU. And so what were those days like? Certainly a pioneer. <laughs> well, so I wasn't by any means the first person to do that. It had been published uh, in single-channel EEG by uh, Pamela Pryor uh, over in England. But we were lucky enough to get some of your early equipment that allowed us to do eight-channel recordings and then analyze them offline. Uh, so you remember they had these big removable hard drives that one could uh, then take to another machine and process. And it was actually very interesting to see that the spectral edge, or in this case the 95% power in the spectrum, uh, immediately changed when the patient had a seizure. You could localize with it. You could display hours of information on one screen and show, for example, that seizures were or were not coming under control. So I thought this was, uh, at the time, perhaps the most useful portable system for doing this. And we used to hook up the patients in the ICU and uh, try to look at it online, but often the people who were in the ICU weren't sophisticated enough in EEG to do it, so we would do the processing later. Uh, but it quickly moved into something now that people do all the time. And I think in great measure because your equipment showed it to be worthwhile. Well, and in, in the hands of people like you, and, and I, you know, we, we really appreciate that. It's certainly, um, you know, when you're, when you're developing equipment, you're always wondering, you know, all the time, is it going to be useful? <laughs> and you never get that answer until you get it into the hands of people that really sort of have the same vision. So, well, uh, we, we found it to be very useful. And when, more uh, specialized equipment for doing this sort of EEG processing became available. Uh, That equipment then moved into the animal lab, and we had a rat EMU uh, based on that. (laughs) And as far as I know, it's still running today. (laughs) I didn't didn't know that. (laughs) That's great. Uh, That's good. You know, one of the things I wanted to uh, talk about is um, 
You know, I, I talk to a lot of um, people in medical school or, or uh, right after that, and I, I see how they get interested in neurocritical care by, um, you know, listening to people like you and, and many of the other um, legendary people in, in neurocritical care. But how, how did you get interested in this when, when you're one of the people that started the field? I mean, what, what drove you to this field that really didn't exist before? Okay. Well, first, I have to say I never had a plan to do this. <laughs> um, I had started out in internal medicine thinking I would be a general internist and realized that uh, that wasn't the career for me to be hanging up a shingle and treating arthritis. Uh, if there had been the position of hospitalist at that time, that might have been what I did. Uh, but as I went through internal medicine, I started to close in on what is it that I really like doing, and it came down to either pulmonary or neurology. I uh, decided epilepsy was more interesting than COPD, so I went into neurology, but while I was a neurology resident, I was moonlighting as an attending in the medical ICU. Eventually, I finished my training, but the uh, then chief of medicine, who was a pulmonary doctor, one of the very early intensivists, Roger Bone, once called me into his office and said, you know, Bleck, by constitution, you're an intensivist. You should just admit this and get on with your life. <laughs> so I said, well, maybe you're right. Uh, at which point he said, and you should take the American Board of Internal Medicine critical care subspecialty exam while you can do it based on practice. So I said, well, why would I want to do that? And he said, someday you might want to run an ICU. That would be a useful credential to have. <laughs> so true. I said, all right, you pay for it and I'll take it. And that's how I got certified. At that time, there were three neurology, neurosurgery, intensive care units uh, in existence in the U.S., one at Mass General, one at Columbia, and one at Johns Hopkins. And the people who ran those units, uh, like me, were people who were duly trained in internal medicine and in neurology. And that was really the, the path to do this at the time. So I was lucky enough to be offered the fourth unit, which was being built at the University of Virginia. So I moved there and set it up and stayed there for 16 years. And uh, that's how I got my start in it. But for years, there were only those four units. Then as we started to have people graduate from our fellowships, they would go out and start new ones. And eventually there were enough to uh, actually form the nucleus of a society, which from the late 90s until 2002, several of us uh, tried to figure out how to set this up. In 2002, we had our first meeting uh, as an unofficial satellite of the stroke meetings. Uh, and that's where we really started the organization. Yeah, I was at that meeting in Phoenix, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I remember there was a large snowstorm back east and couldn't get home. I think. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, Often yeah. the case. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that was, and I think uh, Stefan Mayer, um, you know, the typical story of how'd you start it? Well, it was in a bar and <laughs> started, so you guys are there. But uh, right. well, yeah, that was, the, the bar was actually the year before where right. we took a vote that we would do this, but uh, <laughs> right. it was good. Yeah. No, and it's been amazing to see the the progress in that in that society. It's it's probably my favorite meeting and my favorite uh, group of people. Great. Well, we so, have about fourteen hundred members now, so it has grown quite a bit, and we're truly multidisciplinary and multi-professional. Lots of APPs, lots of nurses, some respiratory therapists, a lot of pharmacists, and a few basic scientists. 
Yeah, and I've been amazed at how how welcoming that society is to other professions. And uh, the the president today is Mary Kay Bader, who's a who's a neuroscience nurse. And I think that's um, uh, that's a testament to how uh, neurocritical care is truly a team effort, and the society is really promoting that. So it's really um, it's really quite amazing. So of the accomplishments in I mean, since your early days at UVA, what are the things that have happened that have really advanced neurocortical care? Are there a handful of things? There's yeah, a lot of so things. I think partly we are benefiting from advances in other areas that help us take better care of the patients we see. So uh, in any neuro ICU, probably the largest number of patient days are contributed by subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, a lot of the advances both in survival and in improved outcome in subarachnoid hemorrhage are related to really good basic critical care but we've also benefited from tremendous advances in interventional neuroradiology techniques that allow us to both get immediate control of aneurysms and also to treat uh, what we see as vasospasm uh, much more rapidly and effectively. Um, intracerebral hemorrhage is starting to come under control, again, in part because uh, we have better ways of trying to limit hematoma growth and now uh, better ways to extract hematomas when possible. The biggest advance in intracerebral hemorrhage treatment, though, has been the recognition on the part of many of my neurocritical care colleagues that the prognosis of these patients is much better than we expected if you just uh, support them through the initial several days when in the past there was a tendency to withdraw life-sustaining therapy very early. We now know uh, and hopefully see benefit in a large number of intracerebral hemorrhage patients uh, because we're able to support them through that initial period. Head trauma, of course, is our, our next thing to go with, and I, we're all very happy to see the funding of Boost 3 and the ability to do multimodal monitoring is a, a crucial part of that. And uh, I think, of course, we don't know the results of the trial. It's just getting started. But Based on what we've seen from brain oxygen therapy, uh, I expect that we will both learn a lot and hopefully see big improvements in outcome. We're very interested in that trial, too. We've been, we've been supporting it uh, however we can. Um, I think in head injury, just the, um, there's, there's so much variability in TBI, make it very difficult um, you know, to manage them in this in this uh, initial period, there's so many things going on, and we have basically a single guideline for you know severe traumatic brain injury, and I think that has to change. And comments on that? Well, absolutely. I think there are a number now of before and after studies looking at simply introducing a protocol to manage the patients and making sure that you pay attention to good basic critical care, preventing fever treating hypoxemia, treating hypotension, uh, that show when you introduce even a checklist to just make sure you're looking at these things, that high-quality survival increases tremendously. But this is not percolated out beyond the neurocritical care community to the more general trauma community. One of the things that hopefully will come out of studies like Boost3 is that people will recognize the need to intervene quickly. We have also seen that there's a huge variation in pre-hospital care of these patients that is also just starting to be understood and hopefully standardized. For the remaining part of this podcast, where, where do you see the field going? And wh where do we need 
where do we need to pay attention? What do you think we can do to make it even better? So I think we're at the threshold of hopefully some much better pharmacotherapies for many of the conditions that we deal with. Uh, in recent years, there's been a, a new emphasis on treatments for status epilepticus that have now gone into clinical trials. We recently published the ESET trial uh, showing that there's equivalence between levetiracetam, valparate, and phosphenatoin. But I think more importantly, showing that none of these therapies are all that good uh, and that we need a new approach. We're starting to plan better approaches to that. Concurrently, people are coming to understand that status epilepticus, either convulsive or non-convulsive, is much more frequent than had previously been understood, um, so that we will need to be doing a lot more monitoring and in so doing, detecting those patients. EEG monitoring is also undergoing a transformation where we're not only looking for seizures, but uh, able now to use better techniques to detect ischemia and I think that'll be one of the things that we'll concentrate on in the next few years. Clearly, we need better treatments for things like subarachnoid hemorrhage and head trauma. Clinical trials are in progress in many of these areas. I also think the, the next big thing we need to do is to extend neurocritical care to the non-neuro ICUs because 30 or 40% of those patients are having neurologic problems that are often under-recognized and not as vigorously managed as they should be. Uh, I think we'll also see that as uh, neurocritical care continues to expand, that the training of non-neurologic intensivists will take on more of these areas of interest. You can see now a very large interest in the concept of delirium, um, which I happen to think we've sort of uh, added too many things together under the rubric of delirium that 85 or 90 percent of what's currently termed delirium is really different from the other 10 or 15 percent that is hyperactive. Uh, recently, uh, several studies have shown that our sort of standard treatment of trying to use dopamine blockers like haloperidol or zisperone uh, actually has no effect on the patients that make up the majority of those called delirium. We need a new approach to uh, seeing what we can do for those patients, trying to improve their neurologic outcome and not just their survival. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and so what do you think about curing coma? <laughs> Was that intentional? The <laughs> no, no. It's, uh, I think when I first heard about our society's curing coma initiative, I was puzzled because coma is not one thing. There are many causes and many directions in which the patients can evolve. Uh, but the people who have gotten this movement started, I think, have uh, been very insightful about both looking at areas of uh, the physiology of comatose patients that may share some components that could be attacked, uh, but more generally to say, we'll cast a wide net, figure out uh, in general different mechanisms that are producing coma and what we might do to try to reverse it. This is not simply how do we wake people up who are comatose, uh, but also what do we do that will improve their outcome uh, over the long term. 
Yeah, and, and um, you know, I had a very good friend of mine who uh, suffered a TBI a year ago and was in a coma for a couple of weeks, and uh, that experience really brought that home to me. I mean, prior to this, you know, not being a physician, I'd go into hospitals and, you know, look at the monitoring, and the, the patients were invisible. And uh, when you have somebody that, uh, you know, close friend, loved one, it's in a coma, it's a different story, and you sit there and just wonder what's going on in her brain every day. and. So I think it's uh, I think more knowledge, um, you know, and, and I know you're intimately familiar with the the lack of what you can say to a family member a day after an, an accident or two days or three days they're in a coma and you know your your predictions are really meaningless I think in in uh, I mean unless it's a massive uh, you know injury on a, on an image that project means something to me and I I uh, hope that they get some good results from that I know it's a 10 or 20 year project. But, right. Uh, well, we've made some inroads already. The mm -hmm. treatment of uh, post cardiac arrest coma with hypothermia has improved outcome. We're about to embark on an NIH funded trial of varying durations of hypothermia to try and understand what's the best thing to do. Our ability to prognosticate is still quite limited. Uh, and it, this is another area where I'm hopeful that multimodal monitoring will allow us to make more firm prognoses earlier on. And I think right now we're uh, usually not able to say anything useful in the first 72 hours. As the different monitoring techniques improve and therapies improve, I hope we're able to do a better job for the families. Yeah, let's hope so. I think, uh, I think your contributions to this field and others have really, uh, you know, have made a major impact on, on patients' lives. And we look we we'll look forward to what the society and people in it can do uh, in the future, too. So, Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you for joining us. And, uh, and you know, Tom, one of, the, uh, one of my most prized possessions uh, is a letter I got from you when you were, um, I believe it was when you were at, at uh, UVA. And we had just made these, uh, it was sort of a promotional uh, uh, item. And these were condoms that said, protect the head, because... We're promoting brain monitoring, right? So, um, and I remember I got a letter from you uh, as like the chairman of neurology or something that said, could you send some more condoms? <laughs> it's one of my most favorite pieces. <laughs> yes, and when my secretary discovered them in my desk, it was quite a scandal. Um, I also recently moved and found an old T-shirt in the drawer that said, if you don't use neuromonitoring, you don't know Dick Moberg. <laughs> right. And I think we've sold more than those in our monitors. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you enjoy these interviews, please take a moment to rate and review this show on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe to Dick Moberg's Neural Network to receive notifications when future installments are available. And of course, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Moberg Research, Inc. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us again soon.